Guys, let's be honest for a second. As we've been reading through these stories in Genesis, which are just absolutely fascinating, I think, isn't it, let's be honest, kind of like flipping through the channels of the afternoon talk shows? They're raw, they're dysfunctional, they're, they're unfiltered, and in a sense, religiously speaking, that doesn't fit with the world stereotype of what religion should be. Isn't religion about doing the right thing? Isn't the Bible just about like morals and things that we need to use for our character and to grow? It's for examples. And, and it is pretty confounding when you think about there's no other religion like Christianity that puts on full display, warts and all, the deep flaws and brokenness of its chief characters. After all, what does the writer of Hebrews call Abram? The father of faith. And I just want you to know if you're new to Christianity and new, just kind of wandered in here and don't know what's going on, you need to know that the Christian faith is much, much less to do about what you and I do for God. And it's much, much more about what God has done for us. That's the gospel. Doesn't mean that the way we live our lives and our obedience and the way that we order things don't matter. They most certainly matter significantly. They're part of our worship to God. But there is an order of priority here. And the order of priority is that God saves and we respond and all of these stories, I hope we're getting a sense of, of, as we see these brokenness, not only are we seeing ourselves, but we're seeing our desperate need for the grace of God. And I think you're going to see that as well this morning. Now, if you look in verse 1, verse 1 frames this whole passage for us. And unless we really understand the import of these words, we're not going to get, this passage isn't going to land on us like I think Moses, when he wrote this thousands of years ago, would have it land on us. And, and let, let's look again at verse 1. Here's the context. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now notice the wording there. It does not say Abram and Sarai were struggling with infertility, although they were. It does not say that Sarai was devastated because it had always been her dream to be a mother, although that undoubtedly was true. That's not, though, where the accent is on this passage. You see, in the ancient Near East, a woman was looked primarily, and I would say almost exclusively in terms of her worth, in terms of her value, as to whether or not she would be able to bear children. And not bear children for the sake of bearing children, but bearing children to carry on the family line, to, to propagate the, the, the lineage to pass down the inheritance. And we've seen what an issue this has been for Abram and, and Sarai. Last week, we talked about um, this idea that, that Abram's looking around saying, I don't have an heir, and because I don't have a, a son, like my whole like, inheritance is going to this bozo named Eleazar that no one knows anything about, some distant relative in Damascus. This was the way... Women found worth in that culture, which meant this, that undoubtedly the one piece of capital that women had in that culture were always children, always children. Without children, they were ostracized. Without children, they were powerless. Without children, they were disempowered, neglected, mistreated, 
overlooking, and it's very clear here. That's where the accent is. Sarai was barren, and she feels the full weight of that. This is, this is a psychological reality. It's a theological reality. And what we see in this text is Abram and Sarai's response to Sarai's barrenness. Now, just to contextualize this for us for a moment, let me ask you this question. Where in your life are you experiencing barrenness, spiritual barrenness? Where in your life, in other words, do you look at and say, that's an area where there is no life. There is, there is, God seems to be absent. God seems to be silent. Maybe it's in a relationship, in your marriage, with your parenting, your finances, your home, your, your situ, your health. Maybe for some of you, it is literally barrenness. And you're wrestling and struggling and wondering, God, what do I do with this? What does this mean for me? We can learn from Abram and Sarai this morning. So here we go. Biblical lessons for spiritual barrenness. I've picked out four. I think there's probably 24. There, is, there, there are so many. The Word of God is so rich. But here are four things, at least to me, that stood out. And you can pick these up in your community groups and, and what, what have you. Okay, here's number one. We've spent time on this one in the past, but it bears repeating. And here we go again. Number one, no one is all good or all bad. Following Abram's life, let's be honest, is a little bit like watching the history of the stock market, right? Dizzying highs, but devastating lows. Black Monday, Black Third, whatever the black, whatever the days are, right? So I mean, we've seen these highs where he's, where Abram like is like left home. He's like been obedient. He didn't let the door hit him on the way out. He is like an unquestioned, devoted to God. He's being faithful. He is going out and fighting for his no good nephew Lot and rescuing his bacon. And we see, whoa, that's the Abram that I can identify with, right? That's the that's the father of faith. But there are other times where it's like Abram has absolutely lost his mind. He's going down to Egypt. He's, he's letting his wife be a concubine in the arms of Pharaoh. I mean, this is like crash of 1929 Great Depression stuff, right? And it really continues. This, this passage might capture the lowest moment, if that's we can identify one, in Abram's Life And let's look at what's happening for him. Look at verse 2. It says, Abram listened to the voice of his wife. So Sarai has come and said, listen, this is, we have no heir. I am barren. This is not working. This is not happening. And I'm going to give you Hagar. She's my mistress, slave, servant girl. We can have a child by her. And it says in verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Now, understand what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Abram was just doing awesome, but then when he, the, the time he really sat down and listened to his wife, things went bad, okay? Husbands, don't try this at home. This is not what this text means. What it literally means is that Abram hearkened to the voice of his wife. It's the same word that we find where in Genesis 3, where it said that Adam listened to his wife and took the fruit from her. 
In other words, up to this point, Abram had been listening to the voice of God. God, what do you want us to do? God, where do you want us to go? God, who do you want us to be? And this is Moses' way of saying, now Abram stops listening to God. And this is a problem because I have a ton, a ton, and I hope you do too, of sympathy for Sarai. She's not, she's not sinless by any means. She's culpable along in a variety of ways. We're going to talk about that. But let's remember something. Who did God's word come to? Abram. To this point, at least what we know from the text, God has not also appeared to Sarai. And because God has come with his word to Abram as the patriarch leader of his family, it's his responsibility as that leader to represent God. It's his responsibility to communicate truth. It's his responsibility to communicate vision. It's his opportunity to point, it's his responsibility to point his family, his marriage, his servants, his whole household to God. And what do we find Abram doing? He's sitting on the couch watching TV, right? He's wasting emotional energy that he's invested in his football team, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. (laughs) Guys, Abram's passivity is just poisonous. And, and, And this is, I mean, this is not the main point of the text, but, but men, men, this is a, this is a powerful thing that we need to wrap our minds around. That, that Abram is re- ultimately responsible for what is happening here. And it's all happening on his watch. Now, this up and downness of Abram's life, let's be honest, it can be very disorienting, it can be discombobulating, it can be confusing, until we realize something. And I think this is Moses' point. Abram, it's actually not that confusing. Abram's just a guy like us, right? Who has incredible capacity to do amazing things through the grace of God, but because of indwelling sin has the amazing capacity to, do in, to make incredibly destructive choices. Listen, all at the same time. And we have to know this about ourselves. We, have to, we, we, we can't be unaware of this reality that even though the spirit of Christ may dwell in us, and let me just say this, even if you're not a Christian, you are made in the image of God, which means that you can flourish to a degree. We all can as humanity. We paint and we write and we play sports and we speak and we create and we invent and we build, and this is all a grace of God. But at the same time, at the same time, gosh, we just have an incredible capacity to do stupid things that mess up our lives. We have an amazing capacity for self-deception. We can never, ever forget that. And once we do forget it, we are one step closer to fall. This is why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, and I'll remember, he's writing Christians, writing Christians, so let's personalize this. Four oaks, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's 20 things we could say about that. Let me say one before we go to the next point. 
you and I cannot truly see ourselves apart from other people. You and I, when our sole evaluator of our heart and character is ourselves, we are in big trouble. Because I don't know about you, but I give myself the benefit of the doubt every single time. Don't, don't you? Isn't that what you, what you do? We need someone, we need a brother, a sister in Christ, where we hold up the mirror to one another. And as I'm looking at some of you, not a real mirror, okay? I'm talking about the Word of God. We need the Word of God to hold up to one another and say, look into the Word. What does it reflect back to you? How do you need to be encouraged? How do you need to be challenged? How do you need to be changed? Are you, have you entrusted yourself to the relationships in the family of God? Is there someone, if you were in spiritual trouble, they would know? And this is not just a a burden that you want others to carry for you. You want to carry for others. We think this is a big deal at Four Oaks. During the first service today, and some of, I'm looking around, some of you were there, we had a leaders meeting we call our SYNC, where we train and lift up our community group leaders, our, our, our community group coaches, because we think this is uber important, that, that everyone be a part of a community group. Not that there's something magical that happens when you walk into a community group. It's just that those community groups provide a platform for you to build authentic relationships in the body of Christ. So lesson number one, with us being sojourners and strangers who struggle and who are dealing with barrenness, is just to remember who we are. We are, we are, we are saved. We're made in the image of God, but we are in desperate need of his grace every single day to keep us from falling. Number two, the seduction of of synergizing. Now, this, this word synergizing, used in this context, is not a good word. Okay? Theologians define synergy or synergizing as the attempt to independently help God accomplish what God has said he is going to do. So, in other words, God makes a promise, and we know that he is sovereign and that he is in control. And we also know that he is sovereign over the means and the way we do things and when we do things. But let's be honest, sometimes while we theologically know that and believe that, on a street level, it is so hard to remember. On a street level, it feels, does it not, so oftentimes, well, gosh, I'm kind of tired of waiting on God. Gosh, God is, uh, if I were God, I would do it this way. If I were God, I would press fast forward. If I were God, I would, I would orchestrate things in accordance with this. It's those times that we look at God and say, God, I don't, we don't say this, by the way, explicitly. It's always subtly, right? God, I trust you, but man, I really trust me. Because when, when I do something, I can kind of move things along, right? In accordance with my own timing in my own way. And by the way, you see this all over the text. We can't even mention all the ways, but let me mention three specific ways. First of all, we see this with Sarai. Now, it's easy to beat up on Sarai by this, I mean, let's, um, let's, let's, let's be honest, this 
what we think is a preposterous sort of proposition she makes about carrying, about getting Hagar, her servant woman, to carry Abram's child. But you need to know that was very normal, very common social convention of the day. We can go back to ancient literature and archaeology. It's very common that if a woman could not bear children, it was very common to have to designate a surrogate or a concubine to go and to bear that child for them. Now, what would happen here is that even though this was this woman's biological baby that she would carry by virtue of the patriarch, at birth, it was understood she would give this baby over in its, its entirety. This is, this is almost like, like one of those closed adoption sorts of things, except... Hagar would never be fully free of it because she would always see her son growing up in the household of Abram. So we can develop some sympathy here for what's going on with these women. But when she says the word, when Sarai says the word, she can bear children for me, it literally means I can be built. In other words, I can build a family in this way. And we, we see, and this is Moses' very subtle way of communicating to us, who has promised to build Abram's family in the way that God wants it built? God, of course. And Sarai is saying, I, I don't trust that. I'm not in control of that. I've got to do something to like speed this along. Now understand, this made perfect sense humanly, right? But biblically, it's utterly bankrupt. Because it goes against all the norms of of the one flesh relationship, one man for one woman. Isn't it interesting? And these are always, these are descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning this, that every time we see polygamy in the Bible, without exception, it always involves women being abused, exploited, and bad things happening every time. It's always descriptive. It's never prescriptive. It's telling us what is happening. It's not telling us the way things ought to be. We see this same principle at work of synergizing with Abram. God has promised him a son. Sarai is old and barren, undoubtedly past menopause. Hagar is young and fertile. And it just, on a human level, makes sense to Abram, right? I know what God said, but Sarai, you know, he, she kind of makes a point here. I don't see Abram really struggling too much about this, do you? She's like, Abram, get off the couch and go be with my mistress. And Abram's like, well, I, I guess so, if, you really, if, if that's what you really want. Makes completely sen make complete sense biblically. But what is Abraham saying? If, if I don't do this, what my wife has asked me, then I'm really going to have to rely on God's supernatural grace, aren't I? I'm going to really be dependent upon him. But if we just do this Hagar thing, I can, I mean, I can handle that one. That's a nice shortcut. Surely there's no harm in sort of speeding things along in terms of God's timing. Paul makes this very blunt assessment of what Abram does here, Galatians 4.23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. In other words, this is not the gospel in action. 
See, the gospel is not just theological knowledge that we affirm, for Oaks. The gospel penetrates and informs everything that we do. And here, Abram's saying, I just don't trust God. I'm going to do it myself. The gospel says, trust me. You can't do it yourself. Just a couple of points from this before we move on. Just a reminder, things can make perfect sense for us, humanly speaking, but be utterly bankrupt biblically. And when we find ourselves consistently taking shortcuts in faith, that is a sure sign that worldliness is winning. Now, what do we mean by worldliness? Here's a great definition by David Wells. Worldliness is that system of values which in any culture has the fallen sinner at its center, which takes no account of God and his word, and which therefore views sin as normal and righteousness as abnormal. Let's repeat that. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal and righteousness seem odd. Because we are very great culturally and even as Christians pointing out the sins of our forefathers and ancestors, are we not? We look back at things that were done 100, 200, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and we're like, how could they have been so blind? How could no one have seen this? How can these great fathers of the faith write sermons in their upstairs studies and come down and tell their slaves to obey them? How how can there be such a dichotomy? How can they be so blinded? Because I really believe we will have that perspective one day. It may not be in our lifetime. I believe we'll have it for abortion one day. I believe we will look back and say, how, how, how in the world were we so blinded by it? And so one of, the, one of the things that we, our job is to do, and my job is to do as your pastor with the Word of God, is begin to poke around and say, what are those things that we just sort of take for granted? Things that we assume about our lives that in reality are nothing more than worldliness, are nothing more than culturally bound. And guys, this is hard because obviously if we could see them, We would change them, right? And so I just want to ask you a series of questions. They're questions, not declarative statements. Everybody got that? Declarative statements. The world might ask you, well, why would you want to get married when you haven't experienced the world yet? Can you really flourish if you haven't really exercised your independence and autonomy? What, what are you thinking having kids so young and more than one? Don't you know that kids are such an inconvenience? Doesn't, don't you know that will just absolutely crush your desire for control and comfort? And by the way, on that one, I have a pastor friend in, in New York City. He was recently on the subway with his wife, and they have four kids, and someone came up to them, looked at them and their kids and said, hmm, y'all are breeders. That's what, that's what he was called. Thank you. Nice to meet you too. The world might say, what's wrong with putting my kids in travel sports and being gone every weekend? What's wrong with that? We're just nurturing them for success and their Olympic gold medal and whatever else. 
The world might say, so you've retired, you spent your whole life working and living for others. Isn't it time now, you st- time to stop working and start living for yourself? Isn't that where peace is ultimately found? Because understand something, I don't point here, I point right here. <laughs> this is all of us. All of these things from a worldly percent, I would just challenge us with this, all of these things make perfect sense from a worldly perspective. I would really, though, challenge us to think about, are they informed by the word of God? Or are we just sort of shortcutting ourselves along the way and falling prey to worldliness? What shortcut, and we're going to leave this point, are you tempted to towards today? Where in your life are you being tempted to synergize with God in an unhealthy way? You know, over 25 years of pastoral ministry sat with many people in the pastoral office who are dealing, quite honestly, with the debris of spiritual shortcuts. Pastor Paul, you just don't understand about this marriage. I'm just absolutely miserable. I'm looking for... I'm looking to flourish. I'm looking for sexual fulfillment, and they make their choice. Pastor Paul, I'm just I'm looking to get ahead financially. If that means sacrificing my family on the altar of success, no one quite says this, but so so be it. It's for a higher good, a higher end. Guys, there, there's you know all the you know all the shortcuts. Some of you are wrestling with them today. I wrestle with them every day. Important lesson for strugglers. All right, point number three. We'll go quickly here. Some things in this life just can't be undone. That's lesson three. Some things in this life just can't be undone. I promise we're going to end this day with good news. Okay, I promise. Okay, the grace of God, that's coming. But we can't get there until we rest on this one for a minute. See, I think oftentimes there is such an inclination when we've fallen, when we've experienced brokenness, sin, consequences for sin, we don't like to dwell on that. We don't like to think on that. We want to run right by that. And, and we are going to run to Christ. But I think God would have us absorb this passage for the warning that it is. Not to bring shame but to bring some sobriety to our choices. There's just certain things in life, certain choices, certain decisions that we make that set a course in this side of heaven, they aren't reparable. Let me point out a few in this passage. I think the thing that stands out about this passage almost more than anything to me, and hopefully to you, is Abram and Sarai's treatment of Hagar. See, I I have... Deep, immense sympathy for Hagar after studying this passage. I want you to think about what this is like being Hagar. When it says that she's a mistress or a maidservant, that's just because the biblical translators didn't have the guts to say she's a slave. And she is owned by Sarai. She is property. And here Sarai enlists her to do things, to do this thing with Abraham and Sarai, make no, I mean, um, Hagar, make no mistake, has no say in this matter. She has, she, she's just told to do, she must comply if she values her life. Do you imagine what that's like as Hagar having to hand her son over to Sarai? 
Have you ever thought about Sarai's dreams? I mean, I'm sorry, Hagar's dreams? You ever thought about Hagar as a person? It says in the text, the thing that got Hagar in trouble with Sarai is that she looked at her in disdain. Now, what does that mean? Tim Keller made this point, and I think it's, it's right on. It's a very good insight into the text. That in shame cultures, when an inferior is talking to a superior, what are you never supposed to do? Make eye contact. The inferior is always to look down to the side, ahead. You know, I'm not going to look you in the eyes because you're, you're above me. And to this point, Hagar is simply a piece of property. She most likely came over in the exchange with the Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember that? When he sent Abram and Sarah and said, get out of Egypt and I'll give you all these goods. She most likely came from Egypt. That's still a consequence that's bearing unfortunate fruit. But, but, but this idea that, that, that Hagar was a, was a piece of property, she was an inferior. But when she became pregnant, what did that mean? Whoa. She now has a standing and a status in the community she did not have. She, not Sarah, Sarai, is now bearing the child. And I think when it says that she looked upon her in disdain, there's this idea that for the first time, Hagar was able to what? Look Sarai in the eye and say, we're on the same footing now, aren't we? And it says that Sarai mistreated her. Now that word, mistreated, here's where else we find that. We find it in Exodus when it says that Moses, by the way, who also wrote this, when it says that the slaves in Egypt, the Israelites, were being what? Mistreated by the Egyptians in the making of the brick and the straw. And how were they mistreated? They were beaten. See, this is a euphemism that, that she just wasn't... Sarai just didn't like write ugly notes to her, right? She didn't like post things on her Facebook page, okay? Or cryptic texts. No, no, no. This was real live persecution and hardship. It was so bad that Hagar, even though she was pregnant, risked life and limb to escape from that place, to go across the desert, to try to get back to Egypt. That's how bad it was. Guys, we, don't you see just the distrust and triangulation that are going to follow Abram's family for the rest of their time? This is not going to be a happy existence. The pain of having to grow up in the same house as your husband's mistress and illegitimate child. What about the effects we hadn't even gone there on Ishmael? When it prophesies that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man, and parents, you have my permission to use that on your son, okay? So, okay, you're a wild donkey of a son. You have my permission. See how that goes. We, we initially just demonize Ishmael, but let's think about that. What's that like for him to grow up in that house and be told every day, you're not the promised one? You're the, you're the child of the flesh. You're the child of the concubine. We know that you're not, like, really legitimate. No wonder there's enmity and strife between Ishmael and his brothers. In fact, we're going to see this. This, this enmity and strife is going to endure all throughout the life of Abram, all throughout the life of Ishmael, all throughout the life of Isaac, and, by the way, all the way up to the present day. If you're a West Wing fan, you've watched that show. There's a particular episode 
where the, where the Israelis are trying to negotiate a peace with the Palestinians and the United States is the broker between the two. And the name of that episode is what? Isaac and Ishmael. And as we're going to see in Genesis 21, this has far, far-reaching consequences than just beyond what is happening here 4,000 years ago. But, you know, that's that. I ask you personally for yourself, where, where are you walking the consequences of this in your own life? Are there things in here today that you brought in here today thinking, if I had only, if I had just done this, or if I hadn't done that, or, or you don't know, Pastor Paul, I, I'm, I'm, I'm bearing the marks of, of synergizing with God, shortcutting my faith. Where am I supposed to go with that? Which brings us to our last point. God's sovereign grace triumphs. Hard stop, always, always. I called this last point the gospel according to Hagar. See, Hagar makes her way back to Egypt, and it says that an angel of the Lord, which actually turns out to be a theophany or a manifestation of God in some way, and approaches her and asks her where she's going. And he proceeds, this angel, God, to make some promises and blessings to Hagar. Now understand something. Hagar, at this point, doesn't know the Lord. She's not in communion with him. She's not in relationship to him. She's lost. She's in danger of dying or worse in the wilderness. And here God seeks her out, comes to her, appears to her, and makes an amazing set of promises. First of all, Hagar, you're going to be a matriarch. You're going to mother a great nation. I'm going to take care of you. Hagar, I'm not done with you. Even though you have been victimized by the worst of the worst, this is, this is I've got my eye on you, Hagar. Literally, when Hagar responds to her, what does she say? She says, God has seen me. Or, the God that I've seen is the God of seeing. Do you know that every time, every time in the Bible when it says God sees someone, what does it mean? It means God has remembered me. God has cared for me. God has poured his mercy and his grace out on me. And, and, and Hagar comes face to face with God and says, this God is my God. This is the God that I've seen. God commands her to go back into this very difficult situation. And as, we, as we're going to find out, she does. And you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, if, uh, if I'm not getting too confused here, this sounds an awful lot like faith, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like saving grace and saving faith. I don't know because the text doesn't tell us. But I have to wonder if God's redemptive grace and love has gripped Hagar's life in her heart. Now, I know she's not, her line is not the line of promise. I, I get that. But this is now a God she had not seen. It is now a God she sees. And she trusts and she follows. 
Guys, the, the rest of Genesis, the rest of the story of Abraham is, all, is going to be all about spiritual shortcuts people have made and the mess they've created, yet always, every single time, without exception, God's sovereign plan of grace wins. We're going to see that Abram and Sarai, I mean, the royal screw-up of the royal screw-up. But God says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to bring a son of promise. I'm going to pour my mercy and grace out on you. And, and, and we say, we look at that humanly and say, that's just, that's just it's hard to believe. It's too good to be true. It's the gospel. That's the gospel for you. It's the gospel for me. That broken people, screwed up people, fallen people, synergistic people, shortcutting people find mercy and grace in their time of need through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Does barrenness abound in your life? Look to Christ. Does brokenness threaten to engulf you? Fly to him. See, the, the, the hero of this story is not Hagar. It's not Abram, obviously. It's not Sarai. It's not Ishmael. It's God who says, I will not be deterred, for Oaks, regardless of whatever brokenness has engulfed your life, consequences, mistakes, my grace will reign supreme. Just turn to me. Just turn to me. Look to me. Trust me. Entrust yourself to me. Call upon me. Let's be like Hagar this morning and look to Christ as we come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.